Welcome to Searching the Sacred. I'm Jason Steffenhagen. I'm Steph Spencer. And I'm Lisa Adams. We are hosting conversations about scripture for the curious, doubters, and hope seekers. We're inviting people to ask different questions, questions asked by those who have been wounded and hurt, questions asked by those who have deconstructed and are looking for a reconstruction. We're creating space for love, kindness, justice, and curiosity. We will wrestle, we will question, we will dance, we will dream, we will wonder, we will be frustrated, and we will hope. We aren't searching for singular answers or solutions. We are searching the sacred. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Searching the Sacred. Jason, Steph, and Lisa with you. And we are in the middle of a season where we are looking at women of the Hebrew scriptures outside of the Torah, because if you are interested in studying daughters of the Torah, then I would go to 40orchards.org and check out a roots group uh, in order to sign up and dive into the daughters of the Torah. So we are in week number four of this season, and if you've been sticking with us so far, or if you are a new person who started listening to us after the Involving Faith Conference, we just want to say hi and welcome. We're so glad you're with us and on the journey. So welcome to another episode. We are going to be looking at the story of Rahab, and specifically Joshua chapter 2, and Lisa is going to read starting in verse 8. This is out of the New King James Version. Now, before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you, for the fear, for the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth below. Now, therefore, I beg you, swear to me by the Lord, since I have shown you kindness, that you also will show kindness to my father's house and give me a true token and spare my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, and all that they have and deliver our lives from death. So the men answer her, our lives for yours. If none of you tell this business of ours, and it shall be when the Lord has given us the land that we will deal kindly and truly with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was on the city wall. She dwelt on the wall. Okay. I don't even know what my first question is. I really like the story of Rahab. Um, I really, I kind of want us to read more before and after of where this all starts and keeps going too but um it's not a big chapter so you should read it if you haven't like joshua too like just so everyone hit pause (laughs) open up your (laughs) app on your phone or pull out an actual bible read joshua chapter two okay now that you're done reading joshua chapter two unpause (laughs) well okay so so we can i i think what we can do is we can lay some of that scene ourselves and we can think about Joshua two verse one, which gives us the context of what's going on with the people of Israel at the time. So it just says that Joshua son of Nun sent out of Shittim two men to spy secretly saying, go view the land, even Jericho. And when they went and came into a harlot's house named Rahab, they lodged there. 
That's a lot being said in one verse about the context of this conversation between Rahab and these men and who these men are. Um, and so I think it's helpful to root in a little time and space for like where we are in, in time. So in the beginning of book of Joshua, when and where are we in the story of the people of Israel? They very recently have left the wilderness or are in the process of leaving the wilderness and heading to what's been called the promised land, but it's still inhabited by other people groups. And so they are finding it challenging to enter into the land that they've heard is going to be theirs. I is love how you, putting it? you you moved your language there in a way that I think is really helpful. Of They're in the process of leaving the wilderness. Because mm-hmm. that puts them in that liminal space of they know we're, we're after the book of Deuteronomy. Moses's final speech to the people has happened. And at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, Moses has died. Everybody knows it's time to cross, but they're not going to cross into the promised land until Joshua 3. So this first two chapters of Joshua are in that liminal space. So Joshua is now the leader, but they haven't yet crossed into the promised land. And like, what's going to happen to Joshua? What's going to happen to all the people? It's that sort of heightened moment of the movie <laughs> or or whatever of like, how is all of this going to happen? Um, and which that's going to be reminiscent then of the first time that spies were sent into the land, because the whole reason they were in the wilderness for 40 years was because when the spies went the first time in numbers 13, they were afraid of the giants and all the people said they didn't want to cross. And then God's like, okay, you don't have to cross. We'll wait for your generation to die. And then we'll send your kids in 40 years from now. So now it's those kids and they're going in and now they're spies again. And Joshua is sending them this time. And Joshua is sending two of them this time instead of 12. Well, and Joshua was part of the 12 that went the first time. And he and Caleb were the only ones that said, oh, no, we can do this. But the other 10 were the ones who said no. So it's interesting that Joshua is now the leader and he's just sending two. Kind of like, okay, I can't trust the other 10, but I can trust these two to give me a fair assessment, just like I was able to do with Caleb initially. Or maybe he's not trying to take such a big bite. Like if you send 12, you're going to try to get more land, like cover more stuff. Maybe maybe Joshua is planning just the next right step, not mm. like 12 steps down. Okay. Which, Ooh, cause there great. he's even, he's primarily sending them to Jericho, which is the next step. And so there's this way that it's, it's like that moment in the spiral staircase where it feels like you're back, but you're actually not, you're actually, you're moving, you're moving circularly up. <laughs> um, so they're back where they were, but they're not who they were. And so there's a way it's repeating, but it's repeating differently. Mm-hmm. Um, and what is that going to be for Joshua, for these spies, for the people to be back here, but to be back here differently? It's a different generation. It's a different leader. It's different spies going to a different place in a different way. Will it be different? And what we missed in the first seven verses or so was that they, like we read in first one, they take up place with Rahab and then the people of that city, the leaders of that city find out about them and come looking and she hides them and tells them that they left um, before the night was over. And, but they didn't, they had stayed the night and then she hid, she hid them um, 
and the guards or whatever went looking for them out past the city gate because they didn't know they were still in the city. So it feels like there's lots of perspectives to, to think about there. Of What is it like to be the spies? What is it like to be Rahab? What is it like to be the king? What is it like to be the people kind of waiting? Like there's just a lot of things going on there, but I kind of, I don't know. I, I kind of want to just go back to verse one for a second and break the, that verse up into two pieces of the Joshua sends out these two spies and says, go view the land, especially Jericho. That's part one. Part two of the verse, and they went and they came into a harlot's house named Rahab and lodged there. So we know where that story is going to go. We know what happens in verse two and following. If we're Christians, we might know the genealogy of Jesus and think of Rahab as this hero. But at that point of the story, when you're back in that, you're back where you've been, but you're there in a different way and and you see the spies lodging in a harlot's house. How does that feel? What do you think? What are reasons they would be there? Well, I kind of, I think I f- have feels towards the language of harlot. So I would, I would probably switch into language of sex work. And I think it's interesting um, for as much issue as we currently have towards folks in the business of sex work, um, that the Bible doesn't seem to shy away from it and neither did the spies. So. Mm-hmm so whether whatever the intent of going to Rahab's house seems to be I don't know like I just I don't know sometimes I think like it's that weird thing in the um, I, I don't know I think having now spent time with many women who have who are incarcerated, um, who have found sex work to be the only way that they've been able to make ends meet. I I don't see that language in the same way anymore. And so like, I don't see it as a weakness. I see it as like, there's a strength that comes out of them. Mm. So even thinking in the genealogy of, like this is, like Rahab is there because she's a strong woman. Not because, like, just to point, like, look, at there's a prostitute in the middle of Jesus' language, which I feel like is the message that I have gotten for so long. Like, that feels like that's the story that I was told. Mm-hmm. Which, and I think that's why, like, some of our translations will say something, like, they'll have her be an innkeeper or something like that as a way to, like, which I think it's important to not do that. Like, it's important to wrestle with her role and the men being there and all of the things that could mean that that, like that's left in there for us to see and to acknowledge and to wonder about. And it could be somebody who was a sex worker could also be an innkeeper of sorts, somebody who had a room that people could stay in. It doesn't, but, but to take out the the word takes out some things that we could see. Mm-hmm. Well, and that occupation can come with 
some need for discretion potentially um depending on who's um utilizing that business and so if you're a spy and you want to find somewhere that you could learn about the community or about the city with some discretion that might be a place to go um where you could maybe try to not have your secret found out potentially well i i also i like that when i think about verse three because the king of jericho sent to rahab saying bring forth the men that have come to you which means the king of jericho knows who rahab is yeah there's a way that this this role can put you at the center of power, but in a way that is discreet and secret, but not secret. Right. It reminds me of Hamilton. Um, I know I this actually happened in history, but it reminds me of the musical. <laughs> That's how I learned some of the history. But of of the guy who was the tailor. Because being a tailor, like people were talkative in that environment while he was sewing, like he intentionally, he was a spy through being a tailor to the British officers. Like that was just, that was smart. And so there could be a strategic move happening on everybody's part to go to Rahab, or it could be accidental, might not be strategic. In It might be in hindsight that that's a good move. I like the way that Lisa's pushing us to think about the terminology of it too, of like, okay, if, if we, what are different reasons someone would be a sex worker in the ancient world? And how might that help us see Rahab as a full human? Well, this time, I mean, she's not married. We're not told that she's married, What she asked, like when she asks, she wants spared is her family. And so she doesn't have children either. So there's, in some ways, it feels like um, she's still connected to her family. But maybe just trying to, I don't know how many occupational opportunities there were for women um, to be able to have a spot. If she is a single woman, and so she, in, in a patriarchal system, what ways does she have available to provide for herself and for her family? Maybe this is her best option. So that's one thing that could put her in the sex trade. What's another thing that could put her there? I mean, her husband could have divorced her. And that was leaving her on her own. And it would have been shameful to, I mean, she's still in relationship to her family, but we actually don't know the nature of it. Maybe she's looking out for them, but they're not looking out for her. We don't know which way this goes other than that she wants to provide safety for them in the coming, you know, calamity that is. Um, And so there, she could be, this is like her only option as a woman who no longer has in that patriarchal system, that, that male looking out for her. Hmm. It's also interesting that, um, I don't know, maybe it is someplace, but I'm just noticing in this particular part of the story that her identity is tied only to her occupation, not like it's not said like she's Jewish or like she's an Israelite. She's not in a, like there's not language of like her ethnicity. 
It's not like it's not like Rahab the Canaanite or Rahab the Jerichoite. Yeah. Which I mean, I think I just always have made the assumption. Well, she's clearly not an Israelite, so she like she lives in Jericho. But I guess I also was like, I guess I don't know for sure because it doesn't really tell me. At least in this part of the story, that like what she believes in, like it's interesting because she goes into the story of. Yeah, she clearly knows the story of Israel. And she knows the story of Israel from like 40 years ago, like not just the story of what's happened in the recent past with them conquering these two other kings, but she knows that their story started back in Egypt with this big liberation and then was put on hold for 40 years. And that narrative is still out there. It didn't go away just because they were stuck in the wilderness. And in verse 9... She uses the particular name of God that the Hebrew people use. Mm-hmm. She doesn't just say God like in a general term. She uses the the language of living presence, that name of God, that that, that is who has given them this land and she knows it and she believes it. She sees it. Like, where did that come from? This is the first time she's meeting the spies. How does she know that? What is her history? What is her connection to this people group or this God? Which could also, I mean, just to round out a little bit more about being a a prostitute, there could be a spiritual component to her being a sex worker and that she could be a temple prostitute for a God that is there, which often is a lot more messy with the God of Israel than we like to think when we read the scriptures. And so there could be as a part of being a temple prostitute or cult prostitute somewhere there, more spiritual knowledge of other gods that she's pulling from as a part of being in that role, which also potentially has a little bit more respect and why she might not be excommunicated from her family. Cause that role would be an elevated role. Mm. Um, and a more special role if that was her role. So, and we can still say, even if she's in that elevated role, that might not mean she has a full choice in the matter. Like she might've been chosen to be a temple prostitute someplace. That doesn't mean that she's happy about that. Right. Um, but it might mean that it, her role is a little different in society than a another kind of sex worker. But whatever the case may be, she seems to know who this God is. She seems to know who the people are and she seems to be ready to engage with them. Which means she's been paying attention, maybe back to what Jason said about this being like a place of, of discreetness, but also like there's a bit of a center of the happenings of town that this could be like, she knows, she knows some things. She's also, I mean, she's very quick to like lie to the King. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Like it's a very quick. Yeah. No, not here. (laughs) But she also, she also points out all the fear and like the re- like she like says like hey we're basically resigned to the fact that this is about to happen yeah. and so i would like you to spare me so like for her to say that it kind of makes sense of the lying to some degree like she knows that this king of jericho or whatever like is basically got his days numbered she's aware of it the people are all aware of it so she's you know she's she's jumping off a sinking ship potentially to hopefully align herself. I mean, I'm just going to state the obvious. It feels a little bit like, ugh, to think about like that, 
that the Israelites are like people are afraid of what's coming as they come to conquer. Like that yeah. don't feel great. Cause that's really what's happening. Like what she's saying is like, you're going to decimate this community. Don't save me, save ours. Mine. Mm-hmm. Which one of the things that's happening as she's naming that, there's a way that we can see what's happening in Joshua here from the perspective of the other really quickly in the book of Joshua. If we choose to pause here and see it, that before they conquer the first place, we get the perspective of someone who lives there in the form of Rahab. And she has a name. She's an actual human with a family who has a name, who has an occupation. And we meet her before they have any sort of conquest. And that might be more meaningful. Like that, that seems like you don't have to tell the story that way. Like history is told by the victors. So there is a way that that's going to be true in the biblical narrative. And they're telling her story and they're telling the way that she felt as they approached, which is the way the town felt when they approached. And like, what does it mean for that to be recorded for posterity alongside the victory? Well, again, that begs the question of like, okay, if this was really written down during a time of exile and it's a prophecy as opposed to like a prophetic work, right? Not just a oral history that's passed down, but is meant to tell the story so that we learn from the story, then maybe there's something to learn from the fact that, okay, we had a fearful people and what did we do to them? Right? Like, and maybe could we have done it differently? I also think in Joshua, it's um, as we think about the battles that are in the book to notice what the people are doing and what the people are saying and what God is doing and what God is saying. And that the writers, even in hindsight, allow a little bit of separation for that, where there is ambiguity about it in certain spots. In certain spots, God says things that I wish God didn't say. <laughs> And, and that we have to wrestle with them being in the text. But in certain places, we can see that it's Joshua telling them to do things. And we can wonder whether it's God. And so that sort of feels like it piggybacks on what you were saying, Jason, of like, what is it to really recognize what this conquest was and wasn't? Who were the people that were conquested? What was God actually telling us to do? Did we actually do what God wanted us to do and to hold to wonder whether those questions are inside this early prophetic book, which has a different purpose than just the retelling of history. And not to skew us too far away from Rahab, um, but to the point you just made about, you know, there's a separation potentially between what's God saying and what the people are saying and doing. And then sometimes God is saying things that we wish God wouldn't say. Well, there's actually a precedent for that. And the people stepping in and saying, hold on, God, like, maybe there's a different path here, right? Like, like Abraham and Lot, like have no problem pushing back on God's desire to decimate um, Sodom and Gomorrah and to pause on that destruction because like, they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. If there's like just a handful of good people there, can you please spare the city? Right. And, and God actually changes God's mind. Right. And like does acts differently 
than what God had intended to do. Now, they're like that makes a lot of Christians uncomfortable, right? In our modern era, in our modern understanding of like God's foreknowledge and what God is up to. But that's their story. That's their narrative. They're handing down generation to generation is that we actually can work with the divine to chart a path that seems to be moving towards shalom. And and we can influence that. Um, And yet we're not seeing that in the book of Joshua. Um, We're not seeing there to be this move towards shalom, except if you looked at it only through the eyes of Israel, then they're the ones that are gaining shalom, but only for them. And so I, I think there's an interesting wrestle with, okay, like, yeah, sure, God maybe said, go do this. But okay, where's the voice of leadership saying, hang on, like, they're not putting up a fight. Like, let's let's bring them in. Like, let's find a way to coexist. Like, is that okay? Is that possible? Hey everyone, this is Jason. We're about the halfway point of this episode. And if you are not a patron of this podcast, I want to invite you to join Patreon and type searching the sacred. And for a dollar a month or more, you can become a patron of this podcast and get access to the afterthoughts. The afterthoughts are Steph, Lisa, and myself providing a little afterthought after the episode and we want to invite you to share your afterthought as well in the comments it'd be a great place where we can hear from one another as we continue to wrestle and journey with these wonderful stories that we read in scripture what rahab asks for isn't shalom but it feels related to shalom and so that maybe feels like it could be next here too, is she asks for chesed, which we talked about a lot in the book of Ruth. You can go back and listen to our Ruth series. But in verse um, 12, she uses that word chesed and asks them to swear to me by the Lord, that personal name of God that is used by the Israelite people. Since I showed you chesed, Will you also show chesed to my father's house? Um, and so this this question of do the people know what chesed looks like? Do we know what chesed looks like? That's what she's asking for. Um, is that what they're going to give to her? Um, are they? Is that different than saving her? Um, what is she doing for them? What are they doing for her? How are we build bringing Hased in our culture? How is Hased? I mean, Hased, I think, is very tied to Shalom. But it's interesting that she also uses that word because, again, that's sort of insider language that she has. She understands something about that word. She's describing that, using that word to describe herself and asking for them to do for her what she has done for them, which was Hased. Which feels like a very... um I just appreciate that she knows who she is. Mm-hmm. Like there's a way that like, I know what I've done for you. She's not <laughs> like, it's not a begging of like, please spare me. It is. I've done this for you. Do this. In, like there's a reciprocity of like, what should be happening when you live that way? Like, I don't know. I just think it's, she did. She showed them has said. Off the bat. Like she went first. 
Mm-hmm. Which was, I mean, let's really think about what that chesed was because like she does several things for them, some of which we read in the verses, some of which we didn't. So maybe we need to, we're looking at our translations so we can say this. So when the king comes and asks for them, what does she do? Lies. She lies to the king. So she is, when she's describing chesed, we can kind of say these are the things she has done for them. She has lied to the person who is in power over her on their behalf. What else has she done? Hid them. She hid them, which is no small thing. So verse six, she brings them up to the roof of the house, hides them with stalks of flax on the roof of her house. So she's not just like putting them in a guest room. She like takes them up to the roof and covers them or through. So she carefully hides them. Then what does she do? Well, she she tells the people that they've left and so that they go outside the city walls to pursue, quote unquote, even though they're not there. So it kind of furthers the lie, right? Like they're not here anymore. They actually left the city walls, go pursue them elsewhere. They're hiding. And then she warns them about um, what's coming next. Like she wakes them up and helps them escape. Okay, so then she once this once those who are pursuing them are gone, she, then she goes back up where they're hiding and talks to them, affirms their strength and all that they're going to do, and um, asks for that chesed in return. Um, and then she goes on and tells them um, exactly how to escape. So she doesn't just like let them out. She says like, go into the hills. Um, and stay there for three days and stay there for three yep. days because then you won't be found. And so she, she has this very long and hard action on their behalf. And it's interesting too, because Joshua takes all of that information. And when he hears that story, his response isn't like, okay, now give me the battle plan. Where are they weak? What, what part of the city should we attack first? He basically hears their story and is like, okay, truly the Lord has given them into our hands. Like he kind of takes it all as a sign. Like, okay, this, this person looked out for you and now you're going to return that kindness. That's got to be what the Lord wants us to do. Like, like he's ready to go based on just this story, basically. Which means, once again, we have a woman who is an outsider being the demonstration of where God is in the narrative. Oh, because probably you're just never on the outside. <laughs> oh, wait, say more about that, Lisa. Well, I like our our ideas of who's on the outside. God is there's just never God doesn't have an outside. Mm. We do. <laughs> we envision things on the outside, but God doesn't. I mean, imagine if you could live your life and trust that. Mm-hmm. Trust what? That no one's on the outside? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it feels her name, Rahab, is rooted in, um, so Rahab is to be broad or wide. Um, so the verb 
Rahab is to grow wide, to be large, to make room, to enlarge. And so it's spacious. So, uh, so often it's talking about they're going into, they're leaving Egypt, which is a narrow place. And then they're in the wilderness. And part of going to the promised land is to be enlarged, to become a people, to have God's going to make Abram's name great. All of these things that are about wideness. Um, God will enlarge your borders. And that's her name. Like the promise is that their borders will be enlarged when they get there. And the first person they meet, that is her name. Yeah, Joshua would probably see that as a sign, right? <laughs> well, and even her actions like reflect that, that making room. Mm-hmm. Her view, how she views people obviously is quite expansive. Which, I mean, that I'm kind of playing with what you were saying, Lisa, of like, we see an outsider, an insider, we see an other, but, but the person that we might see as an other holds the name of spaciousness and room. Like, how is, there's some irony, I don't know if irony is the right word of like, like, can we see it? Can we see that the person we think is an other is actually named spaciousness and has room for us if we would make room for them? And how would we live differently if we saw that name and saw that identity of they have room for us? Do I have room for them? Well, it'd be like if the church excluded a group of women for their um, choice of work, and those women happen to be named Grace and Faith. And the irony of the name meaning something that maybe we should be paying attention to. Hmm. Funny you said. I was thinking about um, like an immigrant crossing a border named Jesus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, what mm-hmm. things do we miss? And when we don't actually pay attention to names. Mm-hmm. Or maybe they're like warnings, like flashing lights at us. <laughs> right. Yeah. I also think about, so then when I think about Rahab, when I've thought about this story, I think about like what it is to risk what she is risking. Like she's lying to the king and making room for these spies and showing chesed to these spies. There's so many things that could go wrong. I was going to say, it's so incredibly brave because, I mean, most of us know that the scariest place to find ourselves is when you backed someone into a corner where the only thing they have left to do is like fight their way out. And because that's when it just the gloves come off and it's just, you know, whatever, whatever goes. Right. And so this king is extremely vulnerable, knows what's coming, can see it happening. and is probably looking for any semblance of control, any semblance of vengeance, any semblance of, I got to show people that I'm strong still. And here she is lying straight to his face on the cusp of his downfall. I mean, that's like the point at which you don't want to cross the king, like at, the, at you know, ever. Like, <laughs> I mean, 
it'd be so quick to take it take out all that frustration on her mm-hmm. and yet she's got the courage and the bravery to do this amazing thing and what else is she, what is she risking it for what's the risk in the other direction these two spies came and stayed at her house she lies for them and says show me has said what's the risk that she won't get it from them at all. <laughs> that she she gives all of this first and then trusts that they will give that chesed back. What if they don't? What if what if she took this risk and they decide to kill her anyway? Or Yeah, I mean she's not exactly an Israelite, so like even their definition of loving kindness could could just be we're going to spare your life but we're not going to treat you like with respect hmm. she doesn't know how they're going to navigate this and so yeah she really is just trusting or if they're going to like actually like be true to their word like who would know right like who would know if they don't do any like they don't have to tell anybody about this interaction like She could be used for their own purposes and that's that. Which that, okay, these are the verses we we didn't read about that are sort of famous about Rahab is this red cord that she hangs out her window. Um, Because when we really sort of think about this, this is like amazing to me that this happens. So she gives, so she gives this, um, okay, you guys show me Hasad. They say that, um, and the men answer her, our life for yours. Um, it shall be that we will deal kindly with you. We will show you said. So they promise they'll give her a said in return. Again, they may or may not stay, stay true to their word to Lisa's point, but they say that they will. That's verse 14. So in verse 15, she lets them down by a cord through her window. And then she says, when you come back, when you see this red cord, that's where I will be. Come save me and my family. But the thing that we like... I don't know. I don't know that I thought about this till like last year sometime was the question of how long was that red cord hanging out her window? Mm. Cause she sends them to the mountains for three days. Then they go talk to Joshua and we do not know how much time passes before the Israelites actually come back to Jericho, which means Rahab didn't know how much time was going to pass before they come back there. So how long, did she have to live life with that red cord hanging out her window, mm-hmm. not knowing if or when anything was going to happen from it? And her room is in the city wall. So who saw that red cord? Everyone that was outside the city wall. So how, let's say it took a month for them to come back. And she's a month of neighbors asking her, Rahab, why do you have a red cord hanging out your window? Like, it feels like it'd be super suspicious to, like, do that after the king was like, were the men there? Like, I just all feel shady. (laughs) Yeah, like this, I think really sitting with how crazy this act was for her to, like, hang a red cord out her window for however long it took for them to come back is actually really audacious or stupid or vulnerable or just all of that. And of course the men were like, just leave it hang there. That's how we'll know. (laughs) 
leave this super visible, obvious thing out the window so we can find it. <laughs> Don't worry about like it calling you out at all. <laughs> Which there's a way when we then think about how visible that is and that it's red, there's there's so many layers to the story of saying, how is this a Passover moment? How is this a moment where Rahab is putting red out her window, just like the Israelites had put red around their door? And what is that moment for any of us to like do that? And what is it to see this sex worker who lives in Jericho do an act of faith that could even be seen as bolder than Passover was because she had to leave that red there for a really long time. It wasn't one night. It was probably weeks. I'm just saying, again, this is not, this is not really like, anyway, my brain was thinking about like, you know, how you really have to pay attention when you park your car in big parking lots to like know where you got to go afterwards. And so maybe there's, it really is imperative that they are able to distinguish where she is. But in that, it also means that everybody else is able to distinguish where she is. Mm -hmm. And to sit in that really super visible vulnerability. I'm glad she had her family. Like, I'm glad the family was a part of her. I I can't imagine being alone and having to do that. Like, And she might have, when I read it again, I think there's room to say she might have been able to take it out and put it back. Because it does say when you, when we, um, behold, when we come into the land, bind this scarlet thread in your window, which you have let us down by. So it could be that she let them down. Oh, to get back it. in. And then when they came and she saw them come, she put it back out again. Mm-hmm. There is room for that. Less vulnerable, but still. <laughs> probably, probably more realistic. <laughs> but, and, and still really like, like, even if it was in her house, she still then had to look at that cord every day. You know, and say, when will I put that back out again? Will I have the chance to put it back out again? Mm-hmm. Will they remember me when I put it back out again? Well, yeah, I mean, it's an act of faith, right? I mean, like similar to the Passover, like you do this thing not knowing what's really going to happen. It's not like we've had one before, right? And so you paint these doors and then you just trust that whatever calamity is happening is going to pass you by. And I mean, you don't know. You don't know, like, like, is this real? Like, I mean, it's not like the Lord told every single Hebrew, you know, Israelite in that moment to do this. It was like, God told the leaders and they're doing this. Okay. I guess we're trusting, you know, and here she is like trusting these two spies that she met for a night and she's done all these kind, brave things for them. And I mean, she doesn't know, like it's, it's an act of faith, which is what's so beautiful about it. And um, and what's so brave about it. All right. So Jason, you use the word faith. I'm going to use the word hope because they're, they're similar. I think at least in the context of what you're saying, and it's, and it's the actual word for what Rahab does here or what she's told to do here in verse 18. 
So they say, behold, when we come into the land, bind this line of scarlet thread in the window, which you let us down by. And when they're buying, when she's binding that scarlet thread, um, the word that is used there, which I lost again, why am I losing it? She hangs a tikva out her window. Um, and tikva is the word for hope. And so she's, it's the scarlet cord of hope that she hangs out her window. And I love this story for thinking about how we think about hope and what hope actually is. So tikva is the word for hope. And, um, and it is, um, oh, it's the line there. We, I was like, where is it in the verse? Bind this tikva of scarlet thread. So my translation says line, but it's the word tikva. So bind this hope of scarlet thread. And that hope is also then the word expectation. It comes from, so the word tikva comes from the word kava, which is um, first used in Genesis 1 when God gathers the waters. And so there's dry land and waters. And out of those gathered waters, there's now space where life can come. And so the way that you just said it about Passover and like, we don't really know there's a way that that's the biblical word for hope is taking an action when we don't really know the outcome, but taking this action will allow for a possible outcome that we desire or that God promises or whatever kind of word we want to put there. And so the gathered waters don't guarantee that things will grow from the land or, or be birthed in the sea, but without creating land and sea, no life can come. So God, that kava is weight or hope in the action form. Same thing with Rahab. Then the word hope in, in noun form is the literal cord she hangs out her window. She's taking an action without which something can't happen. And it's tangible. And so hope biblically is not a feeling. It is a verb and it is a noun. Hmm. And it is a verb and a noun when we don't know the outcome, but there is something we are doing that opens up the possibility of an outcome we desire. That is so monumentally important for us to recognize because I think so often in our culture, we do the opposite, right? I mean, I think that's what you're getting at. That's why you're telling us all this because we put hope as like, I just hope that through no effort of my own and through no energy and no action, I hope that this outcome happens. But that's that's like wish wishing, right? That, that's not hope, especially not hope biblically. Hope biblically, like you're saying, is tangible action and effort for a future that is not yet here that we desire to see. And Ooh, say that again. That was a good definition of hope. Can you say it again? Hope is tangible action towards a future that we do not yet see. And I love that there's not just a, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, but there's like this actual physical cord right? That she's got hanging from her window. Like you can see hope. Like, I mean, it's not just like an idea, but it's an actual physical object that you can like cling to, to say like, that's what we're heading towards, or this is symbolic of what we're heading towards. It feels like it's got to have a little bit of risk to it. Yeah. Like, it's got to be risky. 
that vulnerability piece. Yeah. Cause even, I mean, thinking about it being rooted in God's action of separating the water and allowing life to come forth. I don't know how much, I don't know, like, it's kind of interesting to imagine it being a little bit risky for God. <laughs> mm. Right. So like that, that, you know, does God hope, does God hope for us something? And like, that's part of like what we do in the world. Mm. It may or may, God doesn't actually know exactly like that, that maybe that future is contingent on some of us doing things. Mm. There's, the vulnerability of hope is so, I feel like that's a part of why we want to have hope be a feeling instead of a tangible action or a noun, because if it's a feeling, the disappointment is different. Like if I work towards a future that is not yet here and because it's not yet here is not yet guaranteed, I have to deal with the disappointment of putting work towards something that doesn't come to pass. And so it's safer to keep it a feeling because it's so vulnerable to actually work towards something that is not a guarantee. Um, and what if that's actually what hope is? And and what in in and in that what what it does free us from though is it doesn't tell us how Rahab feels about any of this. So we tend to think lack of faith. I mean, this is why like faith and hope feel really tied to me in terms of how I talk about them. We think we tend to think of doubt as like not believing something about God in our intellect or, or lack of faith, you know, or lack of being something like not feeling good about something. Whereas like she could have been hopeful, but angry. She could have been mad hanging this cord out of her window. She could have been terrified. She could have been grieving. She could have been excited and she could have been all of those things and more. It's not about the feeling. It's about the action. Well, she could have been like, there's no chance this is working out for me. Yes. I mean, she could have been as doubtful as possible. Yes. yes. But she did it anyway. Yep. And like, where do we, I don't know. I think that lately I've been thinking about how much this idea of hope is what I am missing, what I am missing personally. I'll put this on myself. And what I think society is missing is like, I don't think this action towards climate change is going to help, but I'm going to do it anyway. I don't know if this action towards anti-racism is going to help, but I'm going to do it any, like that action of like turning that despair. Like we, I I feel like we've naturally become so cynical about so many things, but in that cynicism, we're frozen. Mm -hmm. And like, how can we hold on to Tikva? How can we hang cords out our window and say, this could all, this could be nothing. It feels vulnerable, but I'm going to try. I'm going to try. Mm-hmm. We're going to try. I feel Lisa, you're, I think Lisa, you, you inspire me about Tikva. So I feel like the work you do in the prisons is Tikva. Mm-hmm. It is, there's a lot that is unknown and there is so much that is not a guarantee, but you're actually doing the work of moving towards people who are in an oppressed population and showing love and being present. You know, it's, what's crazy is I would have like, it's interesting how it changes over time Mm. because what's interesting to me is what feels like for me, where it feels like it's being lived out right now is in learning how to name and 
believe that abolition is possible. Like mm-hmm. that feels like the space right now that like going into the prisons feels like there's, I don't have to hope. There's no hope for me in doing it. Like I just, that is just, that has become the thing to do. What feels like the thing where I am like risking without knowing the outcome is being a person who says, I think the prison system, the justice system here in the U S needs to be abolished. Hmm. And because I, I recognize what happens when I say it <laughs> and like it, there's a lot of, um, because I don't, I, I don't actually know what that means in lots of ways. I don't know what the future means with that, mm. but I, like, I have to, like, I want to believe that it's possible and it can be good. Um, so like, yeah, I like, there's a, it's an interesting thing. Like it makes me wonder about as Rahab continued to live her life, how her hope continued to like grow wide, like got wider. Mm-hmm. Like maybe for like some, her name. Yeah. Like it just, we, we miss out. Like we get stunted in a place, but like actually once we start stepping out with that hope and that action, it becomes more natural to do it in many places, which actually feels where I feel like that's where like God does some of, some of God's like kind of fun, crazy work that <laughs> where you just see things that you're like, oh, that's, that's God. And I, I, I need those things. Like I kind of need that because in lots of ways it, I don't do that. That doesn't happen for me in church anymore. Mm-hmm. Like I don't, like I don't meet God there. I don't see God there. I don't. And it's not for lack of like trying. <laughs> it's just, it's not, it's not there. I'm seeing God in these other spaces. And so that feels like hope too. Hmm. Hmm. Well, I love that when we think about the series that we're doing on women and what it is to really take time in the Hebrew scriptures to hear these stories is to notice that it's Rahab who shows us hope. It's not Abraham. It's not Jacob. It's not like the first use of this word tikva in the Bible is Rahab. Mm. She's the first one to, to do this and to give us this example. And we can see in her life, what does that look like to be an expansive, spacious person who makes room for a new, who makes room for outsiders and who, who does this tangible act of hope? Like, how is she a model for something for us in, in how she's living here and what she's doing? Well, and how did that, how did her hope then inspire those spies hope? Like the way that that can spread. Like, I bet those spies coming back to Joshua were changed by that experience. (laughs) Well, and not to get all like New Testament woo-woo about this, but. Oh, do it, do it. (laughs) You're our New Testament woo-woo person, Jason. (laughs) Okay. Um, I didn't know I had that title. Uh, (laughs) I'm going to make a t-shirt. I'm a New Testament <laughs> woman person. Um, I mean, Jesus is fully aware of the history that he's entering into and has a grasp on it. And he's also fully human. I wonder if he 
like grasped onto the hope of Rahab for what he was preparing to do. You know, because as a fully human being, I mean, he had to have been like, this is crazy, right? Like, what I'm about to do, like, this is crazy. I'm going to open up the scroll of Isaiah and say that I'm fulfilling this right now. Now, it's fully God, sure. But as a fully human being, I wonder if he's grasping onto that hope of Rahab and saying, okay, this is this is part of the story. Like, let's live it out and see what happens and fulfill it. That made me curious about hope in the New Testament. So I was just looking that up for a moment. <laughs> does, does Jesus use the word? Um, that's going to take a little bit more investigation. But conceptually, yeah, where where might there have been? Outcomes that weren't quite as guaranteed as we tend to think when we look in hindsight. Mm-hmm. Hindsight kind of impacts that. <laughs> mm-hmm. And what was it to do those tangible actions towards a hoped for future? Which, I mean, I think that's my challenge as we close out this episode from is for myself. Like, what are my tangible actions? towards uh i'm gonna have to go back and listen to your definition unless you can give it again jason the tangible action towards a future that is not yet known like what 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 are mine this week what are my tangible actions towards a future not yet known but desired Mm -hmm. and where can i co-create with god in that like where is where is the future that I long for actually a future I am a part of co-creating and it's going to take some tangible action on my part. I think for me when when I hear that question I think of two things. I think of those that are maybe post church or have left that kind of liturgical community and like okay, what does it mean to tangibly grasp onto things or create things or to have things that name that not yet known future? Um, But like yesterday in church, we did communion. You know, we did the Lord's Supper, the good gift, the Eucharist. And to me, that's Christ's tangible hope, right? It's the, we're going to share this together in anticipation and an invitation to the participation of what's coming to, to live this out, to be this way, to then break ourselves open and to pour ourselves out. Um, and, you know, in the Methodist tradition, we call that a means of grace. So like, it's not like you don't receive grace, you don't get grace because you do it, but it's a way of seeing life as grace. And it points us to grace. And I think it also, I think it points us to that hope or it is, it is hope because it points us to grace. I think there's a, there's some wisdom in the story about how it's out there for our neighbors to see. And so I think it's, 
now I'm sometimes it's easier to do the hard stuff in private <laughs> behind the scenes and not not put anything out the window and so I think that's probably what I'll be thinking about of <laughs> beyond yard signs and flags what are other ways to communicate to my neighbors That's what I'm hoping for let it be so this has been a 40 orchards podcast at 40 Orchards, our mission is to create circles for all people to wrestle through biblical text so that together we can expand each other's experience of what is sacred, whole, and good. We search through the lens of sacred possibility, assuming there is more to be discovered, questioned, and applied as we listen for how God is still speaking. You can learn more about 40 Orchards and sign up for a study by going to 40, that's 40orchards.org. Our opening music is by Less FM. Our closing music is by NCR Music Vibes. Additional music is by 3Music. Any references to books or other sources can be found in the show notes of this episode. Thank you for searching the sacred.